Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey everybody, welcome to another Baseball America podcast. I'm Kyle Glazer. We got another great show for you today. We are just under two months away from the first day of the 2021 draft. And here to help us break everything down is Carlos Colazzo, our lead draft writer. Carlos, this draft has been unique in a number of ways. First and foremost, there was no Team USA last summer. There was no Cape Cod League last summer. And a lot of teams did not have much of a fall. So there's a lot shorter track record with a lot of these guys. And on top of that, because you had a year-plus layoff in some cases, a lot of guys, particularly hitters, were very rusty the first month. They've only started coming around here in the last month or so. And now as we're two weeks or so away from the end of the college regular season, and a lot of high school seasons are starting to get to the end of their year as well, there's still a lot of movement, a lot of guys moving up and down, more so than we might normally see at this point in the year. What is your overall assessment of the state of this draft class? Yeah, it's volatile. It's certainly the the most volatile draft class that I've covered in my time at Baseball America. And that goes back to like 2017, 2018. Um, I think for all the reasons you mentioned, there's just a lot of uncertainty. There's a lack of consensus on the board. I do think that, I mean, depending on what you want out of a draft class, you could have different opinions for the strength of this draft class. I think it is one of the better uh, classes we've had in recent years in terms of the the quality of the depth and that's because there's obviously just five rounds last year so a lot of those players who would have previously been drafted are back in the mix this year um, so that definitely adds to the back end depth of the class I think there is a general feeling that the top of the class this year is not great and that's largely due to a lack of uh, confidence in the college hitters and just a lack of college hitters generally in the first round range. Um, and then kind of compounding with that, there have been a couple injuries to some of the better college pitchers, um, most notably Jaden Hill, uh, the Louisiana State right-hander, and then more recently Gunnar Hoagland uh, out of Old Miss, both guys who we've had at various points as top 10 talents, and now they're done for the season with Tommy John surgery. Um, but I do think the high school class is pretty impressive. Uh, it is loaded on the exact types of positions that teams generally want from the high school class. And that's toolsy up the middle athletes. It's got a chance to be one of the better high school shortstop class we've seen. Um, and I mean, teams generally want to take really tooled up high school shortstops so they feel like can stick there. And there are a number of those players at the top. So I think depending on what you're looking for in a draft class, 
you could have different opinions, but there is no doubt really that this year is more volatile. There's less consensus on how the draft is going to go. There's less consensus on the talent. Generally Uh, we're getting more split opinions and split camp players than we really ever had. But at the same time, it's going to be much easier this year than any year I've done the BA 500 to build out a BA 500 and feel comfortable about the quality of players at the back of that list. I think this year it's going to be challenging to find out who we want to squeeze into there. Whereas previous years, 2019, most specifically just getting to a 500 was a challenge. So that's kind of how I'm, I'm feeling about the draft class now, although it is weird that we're in the middle of the May in, in the middle of May right now, and we still have two months to go before the draft. So that's, that's different as well. Yeah. One thing that you hit on that I've been hearing a lot from evaluators, you talk about the lack of consensus. And one of the things that keeps coming up is that there are going to be guys taken, particularly in the back half of the first round that are going to surprise you just because there are so many players with so many split camps. There are a lot of guys who some teams have as, eh, I think is a third to fourth rounder and other teams think it's a back of the first rounder. There are a lot of guys that people say, I like him, you know, maybe he's not the world's greatest, but then you look at the rest of the board and say, well, yeah, he actually is probably the best guy remaining just because you mentioned the depth. And I think it's interesting there's a lot of guys who are seen as third to fifth round talents. We've kind of joked a little bit in our meetings and I've talked about this a little bit with some other evaluators that there are 150 players who people think are good third to fifth round type of talents more than there are slots in terms of the top of the draft. And you mentioned this, one of the things that keeps coming up over and over is the top of this draft is not as strong as the top of recent drafts. You go back to last year with Spencer Torkelson and Austin Martin, and the year before that, especially 2019, where you have Adley Rutschman, Andrew Vaughn, Bobby Witt, CJ Abrams. The top of this class is not as strong as that. But the other thing that's come up is I had one very high level evaluator who's actually generally a positive guy, a guy who likes players and doesn't crush them too often, say that he honestly thought there were only 15 or so players in this class who are actual first rounders on talent. And then after that, it's just this huge jumble. So guys who are going to go in the first round might not be first rounders if you just grade them out on talent, but because of how this class lines up, it's, it's going to be a, a crazy ride. It feels like from pick 16 through about 75, at least it feels like maybe even down to, to 100. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of truth to that. It makes sense. I think that things might even get wackier a lot earlier just because really the last three years, we've had pretty consensus top players in the class, whether that's a no doubt clear cut number one, like Adley Rutschman, who we certainly don't have in this class, or whether that's a 2018 where we have a guy like Casey Mize, who did not enter as the presumptive favorite, um, but about halfway through the college season kind of established himself as the no doubt top guy. Uh, same thing in 2020, we had Spencer Torkelson and Austin Martin as kind of the clear cut top two in the class. Um, so you kind of knew what was happening at the very top. I think this year, just given the fact there seems to be like a tier of uh, a top tier of four or five players who everyone kind of views as the top players in the class. But depending on the teams you ask, you get five, you get so many different orders of how you would line those guys up. I think that introduces a lot of elements, uh, whether teams are going to be hunting for deals in terms of signing bonuses, whether teams are going to get aggressive with manipulating their pool because they kind of see a big chunk of players in a similar tier. And so the way that teams are going to tackle that, I feel like is going to be really interesting. 
and to the point about the the first round talent overall, I'm interested in how this draft is going to pan out in a few years because I do think there are, is a lot of talent, and I think there's probably a, nor, a relatively normal amount of pure talent in the first round. I think what makes things tough for the teams is you don't have much confidence in that talent. You don't have the track record, especially on the college side, uh, to look at a player and have a lot of confidence for what he is just given the fact that we had a shortened 2020 season, you only had four weeks of a sample for many of these guys. And, and while most of the players had, had a freshman season, that was pretty normal. There are guys like Jack Leiter and other draft eligible sophomores or draft eligible redshirt freshmen, whatever the categorization is this year, who their first year was last year and it was a four week sample. So you really want more time for a lot of these college players where you can get the reps and have like a statistical baseline where you feel comfortable. Um, and that's just not the case with this class more so than really any draft class we've ever had. I remember last year we talked about how COVID obviously impacted the 2020 class, but we had heard constantly that scouts were saying the 2021 class was going to be even more so impacted um, just because you don't have that kind of, history the extensive history on players that you would typically have so for a guy like Adrian Del Castillo who had really two years and it was one and a half seasons of really really impressive hitting this year he hasn't really uh, done it to that extent so is he the player we saw the last two years and it's just struggling for whatever reason this year whether that's due to the layoff that you mentioned just a lack of reps uh, or is he more of the player that teams have seen this year so how teams are going to figure out those challenges and, and separate the signal from the noise uh, is going to be really interesting but I do think every team will probably fee feel very very comfortable with the players they take in the three to ten round range just because of that additional depth I think every team is just going to be thrilled with the players that get to them because there's additional depth and the consensus is going to fall off a lot quicker. Yeah, absolutely. Again, I just go back to the idea that you have a kind of a group of five at the top. 15 guys who are seen as clear-cut first-rounders, and then just the giant jumble. All it's going to take is one team to feel a little bit higher on some guys, and we'll see some guys go in the back of the first round that maybe wouldn't have been expected to go there entering the year. Carlos, you kind of alluded to this. At the top of the draft, there is not a lot of consensus right now. You hit on it. Casey Mize really separated himself as the number one player in the 2018 class during the season. Adley Rutschman was the top prospect wire to wire in the 2019 draft. And even last year, you and I had had the discussion between Spencer Torkelson and Austin Martin. But as things sort of played out, it became clear that Torkelson had kind of separated himself. This year, it's, as you mentioned, all in the eye of the beholder. What is the update? Where do we stand right now in terms of the number one pick? Yeah, I think it's just uh, it's a big question mark right now. Uh, there's there's really been no clarity on that. I, I think the teams at the top are still looking at a pretty pretty wide group of players that they have in consideration there. I think uh, it would be very surprising to me if the Pirates had kind of identified the guy that they were taking already at this point. And I think we're probably it's going to be it's probably going to be a down to the wire decision. Um, there is a group of uh, originally it was like a top three or four group with uh, the Vanderbilt right handers, uh, Kuma Rocker and Jack Leiter. And then Jordan Lawler, sadly, in that group, Marcelo Meyer earlier on was kind of a guy who was on the cusp of that. And teams could see sadly in that top tier. It seems like he's in that now. And then probably one of the better performers in the first round on the college side, Henry Davis, catcher at Louisville is more and more frequently being talked about in the same group of players. And I think 
um, is, is solidly in the mix at all these spots. Who, who's going number one is, is pretty impossible for me to say at this point. I think we still, again, I think it's just going to be a matter of these, these teams watching these guys down the wire and seeing if any of the players come out and kind of establish themselves and say, hey, I'm the guy. Um, it's a lot easier for the college players to move themselves up or down a draft board than the high school players. Uh, early on, it looked like Jack Leiter was kind of moving in that direction, really dominating SEC pitching. Um, but then he struggled a little bit in, in terms of giving up some home runs, skipped a start, came back, and was the same guy. Kumar Rocker, I think, when he's on, has the most overwhelming stuff in baseball. But I think the the consistency of his pitch quality, and not just in terms of velocity, but just everything, location, command, um, just the pitch ability. I think that is more inconsistent than lighter. So that maybe has teams a bit worried. Uh, I think teams when they're picking in this range generally would love to get a college hitter who plays a premium position because you have the upside and you have the confidence um, that he's going to pan out. Um, so maybe teams wish there were college shortstops instead of like a Lawler or a Meyer who maybe bring a little bit more risk because of the additional projection. And then Henry Davis, uh, I mean, there's really not a lot of holes to speak of in his game unless you want to get really critical about his defensive ability. There are some teams who think he needs work as a receiver and as a blocker, but I've talked to some evaluators at the top of the draft who are saying, yeah, um, that is true. But when you when you think about where the game's going in terms of robo-umps, Henry Davis is really positioned to have the exact strengths you want uh, for a catcher who doesn't have to worry about pitch framing. He's got a near elite arm behind the plate. He's very strong uh, in, in terms of how he can hold up defensively. He's got great makeup. He has a, a real want to to get better uh, and to learn how to manage a game. So I think those are all the attributes and traits you would want of a catcher defensively. And then he ha also brings almost innate pure bat to ball skills and an understanding of the strike zone as a hitter with more power than maybe teams were expecting entering the year. So it's an interesting group of players at the top. And I think uh, I'll just be really interested to see who ends up going number one, because I think depending on the day, I have different preferences who I like at the top and it's kind of evolved throughout the entire spring for me. One of the things that has been an interesting development was entering the year, as you mentioned, it really was kind of a, a big three, if you will, at the top of Kamar Rocker, Jack Leiter, and Jordan Lawler. And it really has become a big five. Marcelo Mayer, the shortstop out of Eastlake High School in Chula Vista, just outside of San Diego, and Henry Davis, the catcher at Louisville, have really entered that same tier. It really is a top five, and they really can go in any order. That keeps coming up over and over and over again. One of the big factors this year, because there's just a sense there really isn't a ton of separation between these five, is money. The money is going to be a big factor this year where this isn't a case where a team feels like, well, we can go under slot, but we know we're getting a lesser player. This is more a year where a team can feel like, hey, we're probably getting an equivalent player or a player where at least there's not a ton of separation. And if he's willing to sign for half a million dollar less than the other guy, let's do it. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a that's a great point. I think that's what's going to happen this year. We've the last few years, you kind of hear that chatter that money is going to start to factor in how the top ten goes every year. I think that's even more of a case this year, and I almost kind of hate that because I would love to see, like, I would love to see teams have to go out there and say, okay, this is who we think is the best player in the class. Money is not a consideration, but that's not really how the draft works um, for baseball side. There's a lot more flexibility. 
uh, for teams to maneuver their money and to to work the draft board. So um, maybe that's good for the teams and and for the players as well to have a little bit more leverage in where they want to go or what they want to set their price tag for. But I would really love to see how the board went if it was like an NFL system where it's hard slotting. You know, you're paying the most for this guy. You've got the top pick. All right, who do you think is the best player in the class? And and it's not to say that the Pirates are going to take a player and and not think that they got the best player in the class. I'm sure they're picking one. They want to get the best player in the class. But certainly all of these other financial um, parameters come into play. Yeah, and to be clear, money is always a factor, but it just keeps coming back more and more that even more than usual this year, yeah. money's going to play a huge role in who actually goes number one, number two, number three. Carlos, you mentioned Jack Leiter and Kamar Rocker, some of the differences between them. And just looking at it performance-wise this year, both have been very, very, very good. Again, there have been different ups and downs for each of them. Leiter missing a start and had a rough start a little while back. Rocker's had some inconsistency here and there. But when you look at the big picture, these guys have both been absolute standouts. From a pure performance perspective, Leiter does have the lower ERA of the two, has the higher strikeout rate of the two lower opponents average of the two and, and generally has been seen as having pulled ahead of rocker again not an enormous separation but generally he is seen as being a little bit ahead how do these two compare to each other just in terms of their stuff the type of pitchers they are and ultimately how teams are seeing them yeah i think again depending on who you ask some teams would prefer kamar rocker and some teams would prefer lighter um i do think you're right that maybe more uh, would be more in favor of lighter just given the performance this season, but both have their question marks. Um, I think Kamar is more of a, a physical kind of workhorse power pitcher. He's got a, a really lively fastball at his best. That velocity has been a bit inconsistent from start to start this season. And also at times in the past, I think his breaking ball, uh, his slider is, is one of the better pure breaking pitches in the entire class. Uh, it gets absolutely ridiculous swings uh, from hitters consistently, whether it's in the zone, whether it's out of the zone. Um, and when he is putting a fastball in the strike zone and kind of getting ahead and counts, it's really tough for college hitters to do much of anything with that breaking ball. Um, he's also added a cutter this year, which looks like a solid pitch at times in the past in high school, I've seen a good changeup from him. Um, neither of these two pitchers throw a changeup a ton in college. And I, I guess that makes sense given the just pure fastball and breaking stuff that they have at their disposal. Um, generally college teams aren't using changeups at a high rate. I think he's got a chance to have a good one moving forward. Um, I'm probably more on the optimistic side there just because I've seen it in the past in person. Um, but teams don't have a ton of conviction in that pitch specifically. Uh, and then when you look at lighter, I think most people would, would kind of describe him as the more advanced pitchability guy. Um, and I'm curious how that's going to pan out moving forward because uh, I don't know what the actual rate would be, but I think Rocker's walk rate this year is quite a bit better than Lighter. Uh, so I wonder if that's just a case of Lighter being more willing to pitch outside of the zone. Um, I do think that there is a chance that Lighter being described as this like really advanced pitchability guy might lead people to overstate the actual command that he's shown. That was the case in high school as well. He was kind of this pitchability guy. And then during the spring, he walked more batters than, than teams expected. Uh, that said, I don't think he's some erratic pitcher. He's got a really good fastball that plays extremely well in the zone. Um, he's a shorter right-hander who has a pretty good approach angle at the plate. Uh, the pitch has good carry in the zone, gets a lot of swings at the top of the zone. And then he pairs that with a good downer curveball that he has pretty tremendous feel to spot consistently. He can use it in the zone. Um, to get strikes. He can use it out of the zone as a chase pitch. 
He's also got a slider that just gives batters a different look from a breaking ball. He used a two-seam fastball, and he's also used a changeup in the past that, again, I think has a chance to be a good pitch because when I've seen it, it showed potential. And I think when they're both in situations where they're using that pitch more, um, they both have potential. But I think both of these guys have a chance to be middle or tick better. Um, I don't I don't think either of these guys profile as like frontline starters at this point. Uh, you'd probably want a, a lot to come on for both of them in that regard. But if they were like solid number three, number two types, maybe. Um, I think that's a, a solid projection for both of them. I think either of them could move quickly and pitch in the majors in some capacity. Um, Lighter just obviously knows what the professional grind is about, given his background and his dad. And then Rocker's pure stuff. I don't see why it couldn't play in a bullpen role right away when you consider what guys like Garrett Crochet have shown as well. But obviously all of that is kind of dependent on where the team's at. Yeah, you hit on this, and I thought it's one of the more interesting things. Rocker is known as kind of the big overpowering guy, just pure power, whereas Lighter is kind of considered the pitchability guy, maybe the more polished of the two. But Rocker's walk rate is actually significantly lower than Lighter's this year. Rocker's walk rate is 2.8 per nine. Lighter's is 4.1 per nine. So there actually is a, a substantial difference, mm-hmm. and it kind of goes against, I think, maybe some of the assumptions about the two of them. Moving forward with these two, they are in consideration to go number one overall. Let's be very, very clear about that. Are you getting the sense from evaluators that they have done enough to maybe go over some of these really talented young shortstops? Because generally speaking, and again, there's plenty of instances of a pitcher going number one overall. Mm -hmm. Um, But generally speaking, teams are always a little more wary just because of the injury factors. And in general, we've seen when there is a clear-cut position player to take, teams have generally leaned in that direction. Yeah, I, I think that's a smart move. The, just the attrition rate in general of pitchers should make teams a little bit more hesitant. And like you said, if you do have a bunch of players who you kind of view as, as similar talents, it makes all the sense in the world to me to have just, okay, we'll go with the hitter because we feel more comfortable with that profile panning out. That, that makes all the sense in the world to me. I do think – both of these guys have have done what you want them to do. I mean, just performance-wise, Kumar has been one of the better uh, pitchers in college baseball since he's been at Vanderbilt. Um, and again, Leiter has shown maybe better uh, like highs when he's when he's pitching well than than anyone. So I think both of them have done a lot to cement themselves and give teams confidence if they're picking up top. But I also think that we would stop short of, of saying that they were flawless prospects and they had no questions. I mean, I've talked to scouts who questioned just like, like I said earlier, the consistency of, of Kumar Rocker's stuff outing to outing and within games. I mean, there was a game not too long ago where he struck out the first seven batters of the game and looked like he was about to dominate the entire game. And then the next inning, he gives up three or four hits and a few runs. So those are the questions for him for lighter. I mean, we still, we have durability questions. Teams, we're kind of saying, Hey, like lighters pitching really well. We want to see what he does over a full season. Cause we've never seen that from him. And then a few weeks ago, he skipped a start, have no details on, on why he needed to do that. Vanderbilt just said they were kind of managing his workload, uh, which until something comes out, I mean, that's what they were doing. Um, but, but there are questions with both of them. Lighter is not the biggest guy. Um, so I think teams would wonder how's he going to hold up over a pro schedule. Um, so there are definitely nits you can pick with with these two and with all the other guys who are in this range. Yeah, again, to be clear, these are really, really, really talented pitchers who are slam dunk top five prospects in this class. And 
it's going to be interesting to see how teams kind of assess them versus the other candidates at the top of the draft, whether that's the Pirates at number one, the Rangers at number two. One of the things that I find interesting, at least, is the history of college right-handers going number one overall. And since the draft became what it is today, back in 1988, when it moved to one phase, it's kind of an interesting history. You have a lot of guys who went on to become successful big league starters for a couple of years. In some cases, even better than that, Andy Bennis, Chris Benson, Ben McDonald had some good years in there. Uh, you know, guys who had big league careers, you know, even Paul Wilson, again, he, he was sidetracked by injuries, but he was a starting pitcher in the major leagues, had a, a decent four or five year run there. So you have a lot of guys who ended up being successful big leaguers, but we didn't really see many of them become bona fide stars. Again, Andy Bennis early in his career was tracking this way a little bit, but it was more of a, a solid starter over the course of his career than an ace. But then we kind of got, if anything, a little more successful recently after a, a downturn where Brian Bullington, Luke Hoshaver, guys like that. But then 2009, Nationals drafted Steven Strasburg. 2011, the Pirates drafted Garrett Cole. And if you want to extend this to just college pitchers in general, you look at the Rays drafting David Price first overall. So we did have a run of college pitchers taking number one overall being true aces. Then, of course, you have Mark Appel in 2013. That has not worked out. Casey Mize in 2018. It's actually been pretty good this month. He's definitely looked good recently, but still very, very early in his career, way too early to judge anything. Mm -hmm. So it's just kind of an interesting history of it's a group of guys who were you know, good, but never really true aces. And then a group of guys where if you had the pick back, you would redo it. And then we did have this run of true aces with, with Strasburg, Cole, and again, if you want to make it all college pitchers as opposed to college right-handers, you can lump Price in there as well. So mm. yeah, again, I mean, teams look at this. They look at the history, they look at the pedigree, they look at the models, and it's just kind of an interesting history that even that is just a little bit all over the map. Yeah, I did a... Just we're recording this on Tuesday and we had a stock watch piece go up where I, I looked at the kind of hit rates of the demographics who have a really good chance to go number one this year. And it was basically all the players we had ranked top 10. And, and those demographics were four year right-handers, four year catchers, four year outfielders, and then high school shortstops. And it's interesting the, the kind of data points you could point to if you wanted to uh, make a case for any of these, because the track record of four year right-handers actually making the majors is, is pretty good. I mean, all of these guys, I looked at top five picks for all these demographics. And as you would probably expect, most of these guys at every demographic are making the majors. So teams generally don't miss if that's what you're kind of using to establish success or failure. But if you, if you look at impact, the terms, and like you were saying, guys who, who go on to become stars, well, average war for all the players, all the college right-handers or four-year right-handers specifically is lower than each of the other three demographics. And if you go by median war, just so the, the extremes don't really have an outsized impact, then it's second worst behind the high school shortstops and four-year catchers and four-year outfielders are higher. So there is a good chance that just looking historically that the four-year right-handed demographic is going to at some level impact the big league team and produce positive war. But if you really want stars and star power, I mean, the hitters seem like the better area to dive into. And again, teams aren't missing much in the top five, but this century really the only two misses uh, again, of just these four demographics that I was looking at, because these are the ones that are, that are most likely to go this year. The only two misses are college right-handers. So 
that's something that might be considered. I think there's probably a lot of noise there too, just because it's small samples and, and there's a lot that goes into the success and failure of a player outside of just picking the right guy. Uh, but it is interesting to kind of look back at the demographics and see if you can maybe create some more clarity where there really is not a ton. Again, a lot of teams are trying to sort through this. And again, Leiter and Rocker are two really, really, really good pitchers who are absolutely can'ts to go number one overall. And no one would look sideways if a team took them number one overall. It's just kind of interesting when you have so little separation, you do look at the history, you look at the models, you look at the demographics and and see what history tells us and if the lessons are applicable moving forward. With that, you mentioned high school shortstops. Uh, generally speaking, that's been a, a pretty successful demographic at the top of the draft in terms of career war produced and just overall being impactful players. And with that, we have two high school shortstops really in a tier above the rest. As we mentioned, they are firmly in this tier of the big five, if you will. Jordan Lawler, the shortstop out of the Dallas area, and Marcella Mayer, the shortstop out of the San Diego area. Uh, I've seen a lot of Mayer over the years. You've seen a lot of Lawler. Starting with Lawler, I mean, what does he do well and how does he compare to Marcella Mayer? Yeah, he does everything really well. I think that's kind of the uh, calling card with him is he's a guy who you can look at and you can see above average tools or better across the board. I mean, throughout this entire process, the the easy and the lazy comp has been Bobby Witt Jr. They're both Texas shortstops who are toolsy across the board. I think he is not quite at that sort of impact power level. Um, and that's both power offensively and just power as a prospect, kind of physically how he, he works his way around the field. He's not quite at that level, um, but at the same time, he was a, a little bit more of an advanced pure hitter than Bobby Wood Jr. over the summer, summer showcase circuit. Lawler produced at an extremely high level, and that gave a lot of teams a lot of confidence in his game. Um, good defender at shortstop. He's a, probably a plus runner. He's a guy who maybe not maybe won't have plus power, but with his frame as he fills out, there's a chance he could get to solid average or above average power. Um, so there's really a lot to like about him. I think maybe the one knock on his game is he has shown some swing and miss at times. Um, but again, that was the same case with Bobby Witt Jr. So when you, ha- when you do everything else that he does uh, and you have hit at a high level against the best pitchers in the high school class, I think a little bit of swing and miss is fine. Um, just kind of comes with the profile. I think Meyer is a similar guy uh, who has impact potential as a hitter and as a defender. Both of these guys graded out really well when we asked the industry who the best defensive infielder in the class was, and both graded out really well when we asked who the best pure hitter in the class was. Um, They were both top two in those categories with Lawler getting best pure hitter entering the season and Meyer being best defensive infielder entering the season. Uh, I think the biggest difference with them is that Meyer is not this sort of twitchy athlete. He doesn't look like he's ever going to be a plus runner. Uh, He's a bigger guy now, and as he fills out, He's probably going to get a tick slower, but he's very polished and smooth and instinctual with how he goes about the defensive game. He's got very reliable hands uh, in terms of his glove work. He can throw from multiple angles. I think his, his timing, his internal clock is very advanced for a young uh, uh, position player. Although both of these guys are, are players who've played in the South and played for a long time. So maybe you would expect that. Um, but again, offensively, extremely good uh, feel for the barrel. I think he's got a chance to maybe have a tick more power um, at the end of the day than Lawler. And there's less swing and miss in his game, but I think they have a chance to in different ways, get to similar value, if that makes sense. Um, But just the confidence that teams seem to have in both their hitting ability and 
their ability to play a high level of defense on the left side of the infield should mean that they don't fall down the board very far at all when we actually get to the draft. Oh, yeah, it would be shocking if either of these guys got past the Orioles at number five. Yeah, again, that that is the biggest thing. Lawler is the twitchier, bouncier athlete type. Mayer is just so silky smooth in everything he does. Uh, I've gotten to watch a lot of him over the last couple of years. And just watching him play shortstop, it's one of those guys where it's just so graceful and fluid. It's almost beautiful watching him play shortstop, if that makes sense. Absolutely. And, and absolutely, we've seen from some of the better defenders at the major league level, you don't have to be this burner runner to be a great defensive shortstop. That's not really a requirement. Yeah, and I think the thing is, too, people focus a lot on that. I almost think they underrate the bat a little bit. I remember in one yeah. of the chat questions, someone asked you about, is he just an all-glove, no bat? It's not in I'm, any way, shape, or form. Not at all. <laughs> um, I mean, some, some people might like his offensive upside better than his defense because there are some teams who think he might eventually become a third baseman. So. Yeah, I mean, I I don't agree with that assessment, but um, what I'll say is having seen a lot of Marcel Mayer hits, that same smoothness, just so calm and steady in the box, makes everything look easy. I've seen him turn on mid-90s with a wood bat and hit it for a triple off the wall in right center in a pro stadium. I've seen him let pitches travel deep on the outer half, line them hard the other way, recognizes breaking stuff. I mean, it's consensus. This is a plus hitter. I've also gotten consensus above average power at the end of the day, which I think is interesting. A lot of confidence. He's going to grow into it because he consistently finds the barrel. And as he gets stronger, a lot of those doubles and triples are going to start carrying out. Uh, The thing that intrigued me the most is I had a conversation with a high level evaluator who has a really, really, really good track record of evaluating hitters. And I was talking through mayor with him and I asked him, you know, Hey, do you have six hit 55 power froze and said, I went 70 on the hit. I mean, it's just so, so, so smooth. It's everything you want to see from the approach, the recognition, the swing, barrel extension, all of it. This is a guy who I think people have generally thought of him as a tier below Lawler as a shortstop. And I can't speak to Lawler just because I haven't seen him as much. But just in speaking with evaluators who have seen both of them and, and traveling across the country, they keep coming back to it's really not a huge separation. As you said, they're different players. They're going to get there in different ways. But the separation is not as clear cut, at least anymore, as I think maybe it's been perceived to be in the past. Yeah, and I think this is also true generally in terms of like how fans of the draft are viewing it. And, and I understand why, but these two shortstops do not get nearly the attention and recognition just among general fans of the draft and fans of baseball because they're less accessible and you can turn on your TV and see both Kamar Rocker and Jack Leiter every weekend. So I get it, but you really could take these four players and randomize the order and it would make sense. Like if you thought that Marcelo Meyer was the best player in this draft, I don't think you're crazy for that. I think that makes all the sense in the world. You could convince me of all four of these guys and you could throw in Henry Davis and make an argument for it as well. And I think it makes sense. So there really is not a ton of separation as we've talked about a ton on this podcast. And I think just having these two shortstops be more in the conversation of a number one pick that would make sense and maybe be a really good pick for these teams should probably be thrown around more just in terms of like, and this is all Twitter too. So like, it's just what (laughs) I'm seeing. So take that for what it's worth. But I do think they they're very much deserving to be in the conversation for best players in this class. And if you prefer one, I mean, I'm not going to come at you and say that, no, you're wrong, you know? So wait, you're telling me Twitter did not give you an accurate reflection <laughs> of reality? I'm stunned. I, I, I just, I understand it just because you can't turn on your TV and watch the two shortstops and, and Kamar was 
I mean, he's probably the most famous college player we've had in a long time. And so then adding uh, the son of a former big leaguer to that staff who came in and was lights out. It's a lot of hype for a very, very impressive college program. So I guess I should just probably understand the dynamics more and be more understanding of that, but know that they all are deserving to be in this conversation. Yeah. And as we've talked about before, Henry Davis is absolutely in this tier. You talk about randomizing these four, it's really randomizing these five that's come back pretty consistently here over the last few weeks. Louisville catchers hitting 379 with a 498 on base percentage, 658 slug is more walks and strikeouts hitting for power, hitting for average. You mentioned the defense, the people I've spoken to are on the optimistic side and said, yeah, he can catch. There are people who, as you mentioned, feel otherwise. There, there is a little bit of a split camp, but overall consensus is, yeah, he's fine back there. And if you're even just an average catcher who can hit, you're going to be a really, really good big leaguer. Again, there's a lot of things to like here. And I think people are starting to catch on to it, but this is absolutely a candidate to go number one overall in the same vein as, Lighter, Rocker, Mayer, and Lawler. Again, it's really a big five, not a big three as it was maybe at the beginning of the year. Yeah, Henry does a lot of things well that, that I don't know if you can necessarily teach that is going to be really encouraging for the teams who, who maybe have a chance to take him. I mean, he, he's got, if you look at like his swing and miss rate outside of just the strikeouts, like how often does he swing through a pitch? It is very rare for him to do that. He's got a great ability to make contact and after hitting three home runs as a freshman and after hitting three um, in a shortened season in 2020, he's hit 12 so far this year. Um, and like you said, high average. I mean, he's been kind of flirting with 400 average the entire season, last four games, four or five games. I think it's ticked down below that. You say he's hitting 379 right now as we sit here today. Uh, but on top of that, he, he has really great understanding of the zone he doesn't expand a ton. I think what's interesting is, is Sal Frelick, who is a college hitter who's kind of right in the same tier or right in the same grouping of players, also has really good bat-to-ball skills. But Frelick seems to more willingly, or, or maybe he can't help himself, expands the zone a lot more. Davis doesn't seem to do that. Uh, and he's a guy who has 30 walks to 20 strikeouts so far this year. And for his career at Louisville, has more walks than strikeouts. So, so that's really encouraging. And then when you pair all of that with – above average or maybe plus power. Um, that's a lot to like for a guy that you feel pretty good about sticking behind the plate. I think one of the things I'm interested in with Davis is this evaluation of him as a hitter is almost entirely different from what he was as a high school player. He was a BA 500 guy coming out of high school, very much seen as a catch and throw guy, defensive oriented guy who his carrying tool was his arm strength. Um, and he has done a lot to improve his reputation as a hitter since he's gotten to college. And Louisville is a program that we've seen this happen to. Uh, I'm curious what scouts are going to say about his swing moving forward. It seems like as opposed to maybe Lawler and Myers swing, it's more of a strength-based swing. Uh, and I wonder if that can be exposed at higher levels and how teams view it. Do they view it as like an above average hitter or do they view him as like a no doubt plus hitter? I mean, the line that he's put up the past few years it's not crazy that you, if you think he's a plus hitter, like that makes sense to me, but some of the mechanical things I think teams probably could get a little nitpicky about, or maybe a little bit more skeptical, but I mean, he does a lot of things really, really well. And I've spoken with Henry before and I, I just love the kid's makeup. I love his desire to get better as a player. 
Uh, and I think you really need that specifically as a catcher. Um, so yeah, there, it's a lot to like. And if teams do take a catcher in the top five, the track record of those players is quite good. Uh, so I think it's probably a pretty high bar to clear to be a catcher that goes in the top five. Um, but if he does go there, I mean, it, it, it's going to look pretty good for him moving forward, I would imagine. Again, this is a player who has absolutely hit his way into this top tier. All right, Carlos, I want to dive into this draft class a little more with you. But first, got to take a quick break. Carlos, this big five at the top. And then you have a group of 10, if you will. We talk about this group of five. You can almost put it into a hat, mix it up. People pick out of the hat in any order. And you say, yeah, that makes sense. Very much the same vibes for the group of 10 that kind of follow these. And I think probably even more so talking to people who are looking at this class. I mentioned earlier, one high level decision maker made the comment. He thought there are only 15 guys in this draft who are actual first rounders. I've got those clear cut top five and kind of the next group of 10, but in this next group of 10 as well, there's not a lot of separation. There's a lot of different preferences out there, depending on the team you talk to. How does this next group stack up, and particularly the college hitters, because a lot of times that's who climbs up as we move closer and closer to draft day, college hitters, they move up the board, they get picked a little higher than expected. Sal Frelick, the outfielder at Boston College, Colton Kowser, the outfielder at Sam Houston State, Matt McClain, the UCLA shortstop, are generally considered to be the three best college hitters after Davis in that initial group. But most people we talk to see them, again, McLean and Kowser especially, more in the 10 to 20 range. Frelick has gotten some love in the top 10. I mean, how do you kind of stack up what's beyond the top five? And, and are there some college hitters that we should be looking at as guys that could get up into this top 10? Yeah, I think Frelick is solidly there. I mean, early on in the year, he was a really good performer. I think he's got the tool set and the defensive profile that, that warrant him being in that conversation in a down college hitting class. Um, especially when you look at the production this year, um, double plus runner, not going to be the biggest power guy in the world, um, but has the ability to put pressure on a defense, put the bat on the ball, slot the ball the other way, uh, drive the ball up the middle into the pull side and play really good defense in center field. So I think that's a player you like a lot. Um, there have been a lot of hitters who were kind of this undersized, shorter profile who tap into more power than you expect. Maybe he could be that guy. Um, not sure how much power he's going to really have, but I think, that kind of fits if you feel confident that he's going to be a good center fielder. And I, I think he has all the tools to do that. I do think Matt McClain and Colton Kowser are going to be two guys who have moved around a little bit uh, in the first round, just given how they kind of started out this season, both are trending in the right direction. And like you've said previously, and like it's the case every year, college hitters are the demographic that's going to keep sliding up the board. Um, it's kind of interesting to talk about Matt McClain with people, because I think there is, a lot of split camp and, and just in terms of the impact of the player that he's going to be. I know some teams think he's more of that, like very solid player who maybe isn't a shortstop. That's going to provide value, going to hit, not going to have a ton of power, pretty good runner. And then I've talked to other people who think that he is going to be a, a good defensive shortstop. He's got the arm strength to fit there. He's looked better recently at the position after not looking great defensively early on. Um, teams that are higher on him probably think he's like a no doubt plus hitter. So I think that is a profile. And especially when we're talking about maybe the only college shortstop of like the next 40, 50 players, like that could be a guy who, who shoots up and goes really well 
And then Colton Kowser is interesting because he's one of the few players that actually has some summer track record with Team USA because he was an underclass member of the U.S. national team in 2019. And scouts are really excited about his swing, his offensive potential. Uh, and I know entering the year kind of on his to-do list was show that you can play center field defense, tap into some more power because he had never hit for a ton of power. Well, the power has come. Uh, the reports I've gotten so far seem to indicate that he's done really well in center field. He's another guy who controls the zone well. So maybe at the end of the day, both of these guys are, are guys who are just going to kind of by default get inside the top 10 because you have a lot of comfort in their profiles and their hitting ability. But I do think they're trending up. Um, but once you get beyond them, I mean, unless you are like just still very high on Adrian Del Castillo and, and you think that, that he's just going to hit, which many people do. I mean, it's, it's not a lot of college hitters that you can feel great about that either profile well or don't have some pretty big concerns or don't have like an electric tool set. So, I mean, this is the weakest area of this draft class, the college hitters. Um, and, and I'm curious how we'll never be able to know this, but I'm curious how the college hitting class would be viewed if we had a normal year last year, but we can only go with what we we have to work off this year. And, and that's kind of the picture that we have at this point. Kowser has certainly performed recently and McLean had a slow start was really rounding into form. And then, Unfortunately, broke his thumb recently, so we have to see. Yeah, I probably you know, should have mentioned that. <laughs> yeah, broke his thumb, is out for a little bit, so we have to see you know, what that looks like. But it's definitely not the deepest group of college hitters, which is part of the reason why a lot of evaluators don't feel like the top of this class is particularly strong. There are some guys who, at various points, have been big names, have struggled, have fallen down a little bit, and now it's sort of not a mystery what their status is, but just a lot of questions. And probably first and foremost among them is Judd Fabian, the outfielder at Florida, someone that was very well known and highly regarded coming into the year. Really, really, really struggled out the gate. Uh, you wrote about this recently. There have been some adjustments made. He was starting to hit better, but he did not perform particularly well last weekend against Georgia or his midweek game against Stetson. So now the numbers are going back down again. What do you make of Judd Fabian and just what is his status at this point? He maybe is the single toughest player to figure out in this class. Um, entering the year, he was a guy who, like McLean, was kind of in this top tier of college hitters. We had him inside, I believe we had him in the so inside of the top 10 initially. Um, there were swing and miss questions entering the year. He was a guy who struck out a lot even before this year. So those strikeout rates aren't anything new, but he is very tough for me because. He's a great center fielder. There's a chance to be a plus or better defensive center fielder. Uh, he's going to be probably the youngest college hitter, at least among the top 300, uh, I think, or, or at least if he is not absolutely the youngest, he will be one of the youngest players in the class. Um, he does have plus power. So you got a guy who's very young, who comes from pedigree out of high school. Everyone liked out of high school, although he enrolled early at Florida, which is part of the reason that he is so young for the class. He has a carrying tool in his power. He's got multiple carrying tools in his power and his defense in center field. So if you just look on paper at that kind of tool set, getting that kind of power production from a, a very, very good defensive center fielder, you might get really excited about the upside. But JJ wrote about this earlier in the year, just the track record and the hesitancy for teams to take players who are striking out at a clip much beyond 25%. Um, and prior to this weekend, 
Fabian had been trending in the right direction in that regard. He made a mechanical adjustment uh, about a month ago, a little more than a month ago, where he shortened his uh, lower half, got a lot simple. He simplified a lot of what he was doing in his lower half and two strike counts. And that seemed to be helping him cut down the whiffs. And it also wasn't really taking away any of the in-game power production. So that seemed like it was a good sign. He was trending in the right direction. Um, but just when you talk to scouts, there's just a lot of concern about the pure swing and miss. No one doubts the tool set. And he does have bat speed. He does have the power, like I said. So it's just a very scary profile. And if you kind of look at some of the guys who have put up lines and strikeout rates like he has, the hit rate is not great there. So I think there is going to be a lot of skepticism. But if you're a team who believes you, you kind of understand why he's striking out, is it a pitch recognition is issue? Is it a mechanical issue? Is it an issue where he's not getting into the appropriate launch position consistently? If you're a team that feels like you can figure this out, I feel like you could have a, a really exciting player with Fabian. But if he's a guy who's just always going to strike out at a high rate and he's a guy who's never hit above 300 in college, um, maybe you just are concerned that when he's facing better pitching, he's really never going to be able to access that power. And if he can't do that, um, then it becomes tough. But for all of these reasons, he's been one of the most difficult players um, to, to kind of put on a draft board and have any confidence with where you put him on a draft board. Because if you slide him down more, then you start to look at the tool set and you're like, well, his upside is pretty loud. We light on him. And if you go too high, you're like, well, the strikeout rate is concerning. So it, it's tough. So th this is where it's tough. So I think people talk about upside a lot, but upside is driven by the bat. If you can't hit, there's not a lot of upside. And you mentioned JJ writing a little bit about just where he's at offensively. The short version is guys who swing and miss this much in college do not make enough contact to succeed in pro ball. Jaron Kendall is someone that people have talked about as a potential comparison point. Kendall hit 40 points higher than Fabian is hitting right now and struck out 5% less and he just hit 219 in a repeat season at high A. He's hit 221 in his minor league career. And as someone who does the Dodgers rankings force at BA, he's not considered a prospect. You mentioned the change Fabian made. And if those gains continue, if he finishes really strong, that's when the equation starts to change. There are tools there. I do think it needs to be noted. He does currently lead the country in home runs, tied for the lead. So there is power there. It's just about believing if we'll get into it. Carlos, the college pitchers beyond Kamar Rocker and Jack Leiter, you mentioned Jaden Hill and Gunnar Hoagland, two of the top right-handers in the class entering the year, have both had Tommy John surgery. What does that kind of do to them and where they potentially go? Because we do see teams take guys – coming off of surgery in the first round still. Uh, Clark Schmidt was a prominent example. The Yankees took him 16th overall out of South Carolina a few years ago after he had Tommy John. So there is precedent here. What's the status of those guys? Yeah, well, they're both out for the year. I think um, both of them are talented enough to where it wouldn't surprise me if they went in the – I mean, it wouldn't surprise me if Gunnar Hoagland still went in the middle of the first round uh, given the number of teams that really, really liked him early on. I think Jaden Hill, just because he doesn't have the starter track record in college that Hoagland does have, and he struggled at times prior to getting injured um, or, or prior to getting shut down for the year. Maybe he's a guy who slips to the back of the first or is an overpay guy after the first round. I think with both these guys, I think of JT Ginn last year, who was a guy who was kind of a fringe top 10 talent when he was healthy and the Mets overpaid him in the second round, I believe. So I think both of these guys are, are talented enough, um, and they've shown enough traits as a starter. Uh, certainly Gunnar Hoagland has. I mean, he has 
some of the best command in the class. And that command he's shown back to his high school days. Jaden is a little bit more risky just because teams have never seen him post in a starter's role. There may be some questions about uh, how the fastball plays, how the slider played outside of the bullpen. But again, if, if he was injured um, prior to actually having his surgery, maybe there are questions where, where you wonder if he wasn't at full strength this season. So I do think both have pretty good upside. Uh, I would imagine they're not going in the top 10 at this point, although we've had guys like this in the past who have gone around that range who have gotten hurt during the season. So um, beyond that, there are a couple of interesting college arms and Ty Madden uh, at Texas, who's got one of the better fastballs in the class, really good slider. He can pair with it. He's a guy who's filled up the strike zone at times and has produced pretty well throughout the entire spring. Uh, Maybe the most, the, the guy you can feel the safest about in the college pitching ranks is Jordan Wicks at Kansas state, who, it will probably get that like left-handed pitch ability label, but his stuff is, is very good. Um, he's kind of consistently up into the mid nineties from the left side and has one of the better, if not the best changeups in the class. It's a pitch that plenty of scouts have put double plus grades on uh, and his slider is pretty good too. And he's, he's done a good job this spring. So I feel like that is a profile in general, the, the top college left-hander in the class goes pretty well. Um, so I, I wouldn't be surprising at all to see Wicks go in the top five, 15 picks. Um, and then maybe in the opposite kind of zone is Sam Bachman at Miami of Ohio, who maybe has the best two-pitch combo in the class in a fastball that's been up to 100, 101 miles per hour, and then a slider that, again, could be a double-plus pitch. Um, when he's been on, he's been absolutely disgusting, but there are a lot of concerns in terms of his operation. The delivery is not super clean. There are some people who, who think it might be a reliever risk. So I think he falls into that kind of, they don't do it the same way at all. And I wouldn't compare their pitches exactly, but kind of in the same way last year where Garrett Crochet had a really electric two pitch combination, but came with some reliever risk. I think maybe Sam Bachman uh, falls into that sort of range. And we saw where Garrett Crochet went last year. So I think those are probably the top guys you're looking at. And then after that, there are some interesting players like Ryan Cusick, who's more of a power pitcher. And then uh, Tommy Mace, who was eligible last year, came back really good command guy. And maybe one of the most interesting pitchers in the class who I know you like um, and Michael McGreevy at UC Santa Barbara, who just the walk, the walks, the strikeout rate, uh, kind of the easy delivery on the mound, the stuff like I, I really like McGreevy and I think you, you can kind of expand on him a little bit more Kyle. Cause I know you're familiar with him, but I think that's a guy who might be singing in the, in the first round when it's all said and done. Yeah. Michael McGreevy is, is someone that scouts out here in SoCal have liked for a while. I actually first got his name at the very end of the 2018 draft cycle. I was just making some final calls last couple of weeks before the draft and a couple of scouts came out and said, Hey, there's this high school player. He, Played a lot of shortstop. Uh, pitches a little bit too. We're starting to see the velocity spike a little bit here at the end of the year. He's a good athlete. Can't do it yet. There's not a lot of track record. And he's got UC Santa Barbara. So it's not really a situation where you pay up and whatever it's going to take to sign him. But uh, they really, really liked him. Got to UC Santa Barbara and really has been a standout since day one. He was a freshman All-American. Had a .990 ERA last year before the season shut down. And has really established himself as as the best college pitcher out here on the West Coast this year. And all the things you mentioned, good athlete, elite strike thrower, four pitches, plus fastball, plus breaking ball. There's just a lot to like there. And the more you kind of watch him and see him perform, 
the questions go away. And I'm going to be interested to see just how high he goes early in the year. He was on our radar very quickly. He put himself into that second round range. And with every start, it's, hey, he's probably going more back of the first now. And there's a very, very real chance that whatever team gets him in the back of the first round is going to get, you know, I don't know if you call it a steal because a first rounder is a first rounder, but he's very young for the class, still has some projection remaining. There's a sense this guy has more in the tank and can really take a jump in pro ball. Uh, Being at UC Santa Barbara and an elite strike thrower naturally is going to earn comparisons to Shane Bieber. Bieber took some enormous jumps in pro ball. and It's not fair to McGreevy to say he's going to make the same jumps and become a Sang Award winner. But if you just compare the two of them and what they looked like at the same time at UC Santa Barbara, McGreevy throws harder, his breaking balls better. And one of the things that really stood out to me is there's a sense his misses are smaller than Bieber's were at the same time. So, I mean, you're getting a really, really, really good pitcher that might still have some more in the tank. And again, this is one of those guys that he just keeps climbing higher and higher and higher. And no one should be surprised if he goes even better in this draft than I think some people think he will. Again, there's been a lot of back of the first round, early second round talk. And that probably is where he goes, but there are a lot of teams who really, really like this guy. And there's a chance he gets jumped earlier. Yeah, no doubt. Especially when you start talking about some of the injuries that some of these other guys have, have gone through. If you, if you want a college pitcher and you really like him, you're going to have to, you're going to have to take him because he's not getting back around to your second pick. Definitely not. I do want to ask, is Ty Madden clearly the number three college pitcher in this class now behind Rocker and Leiter? How much separation is there between him and Bachman and Wicks and some of the other pitchers you talked about? Yeah, I think with all of these, there's there's not going to be a clear three year next tier. None, at none of these position groups are you going to get out of the top tier and have like, okay, this is this guy is the clear next guy just because like we talked about, I mean, the consensus disappears beyond that. So you'll get people that will say he is the next best guy and you'll get people that say, no, we like Jordan Wicks better or we like Sam Bachman better or we like Ryan Cusick better. So uh, I, I think with all of these kind of in the tier we're talking about now, it's going to be very much a, a differing opinion based on who you talk to. Carlos, moving into the high school side of things, you mentioned earlier this high school shortstop class was pretty strong. Obviously at the top, you have Jordan Lawler and Marcelo Mayer, a couple other guys, Cliff Watson, Brady House, how does the next group line up and, and where are we talking? Just everything that we're hearing is, yes, you know, these two guys in particular, they are likely top 15 overall picks. People like them a lot. They're doing all the right things in front of the right people. Mm-hmm. What kind of players are we talking about here? And realistically, are they closer to five, 10, 15? How do these guys stack up? Well, we'll see where they go. I know Brady house has gotten a ton of attention from teams picking inside the top five. Um, so I think he he belongs kind of up near up, up there in that conversation. Uh, it sounds like both the Tigers and the Orioles really are interested in him. We've written this in a few mock drafts if you're keeping up with our mocks. So, I mean, just his offensive potential is pretty exceptional. He's hit well this this spring in front of a lot of a lot of scouting heat. He continues to look good defensively at shortstop, although. Uh, seemingly everyone is just kind of waiting for him to move off the position, but he, he continues to show that he can handle it despite his size. He's a really good athlete. Uh, he's got more than enough arm strength to play there. And then Khalil Watson was among the, the most impressive performers last summer. He is not the physical sort of hitter that Brady house is. 
but he has some of the best pure bat speed in the class. Uh, and he showed really impressive bat to ball ability last summer, really impressive ability to hit a swing that just looks good mechanically. Uh, no real question marks with how he does it at the plate. And on top of that, um, he maybe is a plus or better runner. Um, I think he has all the physical tools necessary to stick at shortstop or second base. Some people think he's more second base than shortstop, but um, for all of these guys, uh, I think once you get them into pro ball and they get a little bit more reps and kind of refine the, the natural tool set that they have, you'll get a better idea of where they're going to fit. But I think for both of these profiles, I mean, when you just grade them out tools wise in this class with the lack of college hitters, it would be very surprising for me to see either of these guys get outside of the top 15. And I think like top 10 is maybe your safer bet. Like if Brady house went somewhere in the middle of the top 10, and Khalil Watson was somewhere in the back of the top 10, I would not be surprised at all. Um, and we only need one more shortstop to go in the first round after those first guys go off the board to get the most loaded high school shortstop class we've had this century. So it is a very good group for that position specifically. On the other side of things, last year's high school outfielder class was very, very, very strong. Robert Hassel and Zach Veen both going in the top 10, Pete Crow Armstrong going in the middle of the first round and considered a really, really good player, already someone that's on the cusp of the top 100 for us here at Baseball America. This year's high school outfielder class is very, very different. We talk about the muddled middle, if you will, and one of the things that's come out is there's a group of about eight different high school outfielders who I know I've spoken to some evaluators who say, they can all go in any order starting from about 25 to 50. And there's just, it really kind of depends on your own personal preferences, which one you like more than the other. Just again, not a lot of separation. How do you kind of assess this class of high school outfielders? I think last year we saw the high school outfielders were also the best pure hitters in the class. And this year it's the high school shortstops that seem to be the best pure hitters. This high school outfield group is immensely toolsy and immensely athletic. And I think for most of them at the top, you have more questions of swing and miss. And I think that's probably the case for each of Joshua Baez, James Wood, Benny Montgomery, um, maybe less so with Will Taylor because he did show really good bat-to-ball skills last summer. And Will Taylor is a guy who's, who's trending up. Um, but all, all the first three guys that I'm talking about, I mean, if, if you look at their tool set, like Benny Montgomery maybe – Tool for Tool is the best player in the class. If you're just looking at the tool set, he's an elite runner. He has raw power, great defender in center field, really strong arm. Joshua Baez, I mean, might have the best raw power in the class, showed swing and miss last summer, and you're not going to get much better feel for his pure hit tool given the competition he's facing in the Northeast. Uh, James Wood, um, again, showed massive power potential, really kind of a freak athlete at 6'6", 230, um, so he's got a ton of upside, has shown some swing and miss this spring that maybe is concerning. So I think for all these guys, you've got a tool set you can be excited about. They're all really impressive athletes that you can get excited about, but you don't have the Robert Hassel type hitter. Um, and those guys are kind of paired with the shortstops. So that's kind of how I see the high school outfielders. I, I think if you are a team that, that wants to chase upside, there are a lot of players who you can feel really excited about just given the tool sets and the pure athleticism. There are also a lot of multi-sport guys um, just in general in the high school class, but particularly littered amongst the uh, high school outfielders. And high school catchers are 
the profile that's probably the least successful of any in the draft, I shouldn't say probably, it is the least successful profile in the draft. Uh, but there are two good ones in this year's class, Harry Ford and Joe Mack, both of whom we have as potential first rounders in our uh, most recent update. How do people see these two, just given high school catchers in general, mm-hmm. unless they are elite, elite hitters, and in some cases able to move off of the position just because their bats will play to that level, it's just not a great track record. How mm-hmm. are people seeing these two? Yeah, I think they are the the right type of high school out or high school catchers. Excuse me, like you said, neither are defense first catch and throw guys. We have real questions about the bat. Um, they're both very different. Harry Ford. I mentioned the athletes in this class. Harry Ford is is probably the most naturally athletic catcher that I have covered. Um, Anthony Siegler is kind of a freak athlete in his own right, but Harry Ford is maybe more of like an explosive athlete that that a lot of uh, scouts think can capably play other positions, whether that's second base, third base, or even center field. I mean, he's a legitimate plus runner. Um, he's very strong, has pretty good bat speed, has shown some power potential uh, and, and good offensive skill. So I think there are enough teams that are in on that all around tool set, athleticism and offensive profile with versatility as a defender. If he's not able to stick at catcher where you feel pretty good about the overall profile that he, he's probably going to go in the first round. And like Brady House, he's a Georgia guy who's performed pretty well this spring. Um, Joe Mack, it's a little bit tougher to get a read on him just because his season um, got started a lot later than Harry Ford. But I would say he's similar to the – like it, it's not a direct comp because like you've said before, sometimes it's not fair for a free either player when you're comparing them. But I, I think of him similar to Tyler Soderstrom last year. He's a kind of a physical left-handed hitter who showed some power, has a really strong arm – uh, behind the plate. And if you feel really good about his left-handed bat and power potential, you probably could feel comfortable moving him off catcher if he needs to move. I think both of these guys have shown enough to where you wouldn't just automatically move them. Um, but I do think both probably have the offensive tool set where you can feel more comfortable taking them when you consider, like you were saying, the, the hit rate of high school catchers. These, these seems to be the guys who, who do the things you want a high school catcher to do right now but then lastly high school pitchers there are some very very good arms in this class jackson joe has kind of established himself as the top high school right-hander in the class after him there are some differing opinions andrew painter uh, down in florida has been really really good bubba chandler is a very intriguing athlete some teams are very interested in chase petty has become social media famous uh, throws very very hard how is this group kind of stacking up right now beyond Jackson Job, who I think it's fair to say has really separated himself as the top high school right-hander in the class? Yeah, I think it's a good group. I mean, there are three or four players you could see going in the first round among the high school pitchers. And then I think the depth of the high school pitching class is really, really strong as well, uh, particularly with left-handed pitchers. I mean, left-handed pitchers are a commodity for a reason. And there are a lot of really exciting ones in this high school class. I mean, a guy like Joshua Hartle, who was one of the better pure strike throwers in the class um, and is maybe the next really impressive North Carolina left-hander kind of following in the footsteps of a McKenzie Gore and a Blake Walston. Um, I really like what Hartle does on the mound. And then you have guys who are kind of the exact opposite mold further down our board and Maddox Bruns, who, I mean, I've talked with scouts who think that his pure stuff is better than anyone in the class, college or high school. From the left side, gets into the upper 90s, has two breaking balls that could be plus pitches. Uh, but the question with him over the summer was the control. 
He's done better in that regard this spring, but that's still a pretty risky profile. Um, and even beyond that, there are a lot of pitchers in the, in the Northeast. There are pop-up guys um, who scouts are running in to see now as they make their runs through. We, we haven't really talked about it on this podcast, but the Northeast high school class is one of the better specific demographics um, of this draft class. Um, and then you have guys like Thatcher Hurd, who is a conversion guy, really good athlete, good body control, good mover on the mound, um, and is showing stuff now, and you can project on him moving forward. Um, haven't even talked about Chase Petty, who you just mentioned. He undoubtedly has the best fastball in the class. Uh, now, maybe if you look at kind of hit rates and track records, maybe you don't want that. Um, but he is a good athlete. He has a good slider. Um, there's a lot of effort to the delivery. So maybe that's, I think 10 years ago, maybe 15 years ago, this is a guy who who's getting talked about as like top 10, maybe like top of the draft just because he throws so hard. But I mean, you know, as well as anyone, Kyle, that just the hit rate for guys who throw that hard, this young is not great. So I think there are some reasons to be concerned about that. Um, but I also think he's a guy who's, I mean, he's gotten a lot of attention at the back of the first round still. So there, there's something about how he does it that teams are still in. I'm sure there are going to be teams that are just out on that profile regardless in the first round, but there are still, there are still enough teams that are willing to take risks on that type that I think it wouldn't, it, it shouldn't surprise you when he's taken in the back of the first round. Historically, a lot of times the best high school pitchers, particularly high school right-handers end up being the guys who were taken more 30 to 40 than the guys who were taken one to 10, 10 to 20. I had a big story about this a few years ago. Who's your pick for a guy that is maybe more that comp first round type, early second round type that you wouldn't be surprised if we look back five, six years from now and they've ended up having, or I shouldn't say five, six years from now, 10 years from now, and they've had the best major league career out of all the pitchers taken. Yeah, I, w- I would hope that teams, <laughs> if that's the case, I'd hope that teams would identify the, the reasons those guys went and start taking those guys first rather than just like uh, assume that their comp or second round pitcher is going to be the one that, that works. But um, I do think the guy I really like is, is Joshua Hartle. I already mentioned him. If you want to talk about specifically high school right-handers, maybe it would be heard. I really like the guys who have athleticism, have a clean delivery, have good strike throwing ability, because I feel like, again, I mean, you've written about it. JJ's written about it. It just seems like command is something that's a lot harder to teach than, than pure stuff. It's a lot easier to increase your velocity, it seems, than to increase your command. So just take your pick of any of the guys who have really good strike throwing track record. Um, and for me in this range, I do point to a Joshua Hartle or a, um, or a Thatcher Hurd. I think, I just like a lot of what those two offer kind of in the same way that we're talking about Michael McGreevy, although on the college side, and I think McGreevy's stuff is it's quite a bit further ahead of these high school players, but those are two that I really like. Yeah. One guy that has raised my eyebrows a little bit and has been getting some love is Ben Kaderna, the right-hander out of the Kansas yeah. city area. He's someone that a lot of people are really going in to see and just kind of checks a lot of the boxes in terms of the size, what the present velocity is, room to grow into more, the strike throwing, feel to spin. I mean, you just talk about, okay, it's the right look for what high school right-handers tend to work out. As we've talked about, it's not the guys who throw 99. It's the guys who are more in that 90, 91, up to 94 range, occasionally up to 96, have room to grow into more. And, and as you mentioned, already have the strike throwing ability, show three mm-hmm. pitches, have the ability to just really grow and develop even further as opposed to being maxed out already. So 
he's someone that's definitely caught my attention, uh, someone that's being talked about, and someone that we could definitely see go very well in this draft. And there's a lot of people with good reason who think that he has a very, very bright future ahead of him. Mm -hmm, No doubt. I think another one that I would throw out there's maybe a little bit further down the board that I really like is Branson Cool. He is uh, one of two really exciting prospects out of South Dakota. And I think he has all those kind of classic projection pitcher traits that you like to see. Um, So he's maybe one a little bit further down the board that I like. Speaking of that, Carlos, every year there are guys who rise late and are getting more and more buzz as the year goes on, especially this year. We've talked about it really from the beginning that there's so much volatility. There is an extreme lack of consensus really almost everywhere in the draft, but especially once you get into the back of the first round. Who are some guys that you are hearing or you like or that you've seen that could sneak up there and and be the surprise back of the first round comp round pick? I think the um, the pool of players that probably fits that description is is larger this year than any of the drafts I've covered, just because again, there's there's no consensus. There's so short track records. But I will say that it seems like typically the the pop up players and the guys who get a lot of steam and kind of come out of nowhere are, are normally the high school players who just didn't play on the the travel circuit. This year, there are a lot of college players who are popping up, and it's because last year they didn't have the time to establish themselves as players to be known about. Um, so the top guy that has kind of popped up, although it's not recent is on the high school side is Peyton Stovall, who we had as kind of one of the first names we left off our preseason list. So we knew about him. He wasn't a nobody. Um, but he's really been one of the better performers on the high school side as a hitter, just homers constantly, uh, has a really like well-made swing now gets to his power. Maybe he doesn't profile the best defensively, but teams really like the bat. So I could see him sneaking into the first round. If, if your team who kind of looks around the landscape and you're like, I don't love a lot of the bats available. We really have a lot of confidence in, in Stovall's ability to hit and to hit for power. I could see him going in that range. Um, on the college side, there, there, there are probably a lot of pitchers who fit this mold. Um, I don't know if McGreevy counts as a guy who, who's like a, a pop-up, like he's pretty well established right now. Guys like um, Peyton Wilson at Alabama who have really performed and kind of have some twitchiness, have some speed, can play the infield position and have performed well. Spencer Schwellenbach is an interesting one as a two-way player. I mean, we've gotten some uh, chatter that some teams like him as like a top two-round hitter. We've got some chatter that teams prefer him as a pitcher just because of how easy he can get on the mound and do it while playing shortstop every day. Um, so that's that can be pretty difficult to do. And I know he's impressed people, but those are maybe a few of the guys who have popped up. I think another another name that is not necessarily a pop-up guy, but has trended in the right direction and really improved his stock this year is left-handed pitcher Matt Mikulski out of Fordham, who was a BA 500 guy last year. This year, he shortened his arm action, is throwing significantly harder um, and has performed at a high level. And he's a guy who I could see going in the back of the first round, sinking in there or going in this comp range. So those would be maybe some of the ones that I point out. Yeah. Two guys out here on the West coast that are getting a lot of love and it seems like every call you make, they're just climbing higher and higher. The first is Carson Williams, the shortstop at Torrey Pines high school down in San Diego. And mm-hmm. coming I was about into- to say there are probably a number of high school shortstops you could throw into this. So he, he seems like a good one. Yeah. Coming into the year, he was a guy that 
people actually liked more as a pitcher than a position player. He's up to 95 on the mound, really good athlete, good defensive shortstop, moved well. And people just thought his future was on the mound. He's made it known he wants to be a position player, but a good player who people liked and certainly had on their radars. But he's taken a huge jump as a hitter this year, packed on 10 to 15 pounds and is just starting hitting some absolute moonshots against good high school competition in San Diego. And every time high-level evaluators show up, he seems to have his best games of the year. He's performing in front of the right people. And after coming into the year as a, hey, this is an interesting guy to watch, then it became, hey, he's really rising and could be a third, fourth rounder. Now he's firmly in the mix to go back of the first round, comp round. Uh, Early second seems to be the latest. People are starting to buy into the bat. Now it's not consensus. There are individuals out there who aren't sure the swing, the way it works, and ultimately the power is really going to play against pro pitching. But there are enough teams who do. And all it takes is one. Uh, There are two teams in particular who are really on him. And he's someone that absolutely has put himself into the mix to go, again, whether it's 29, 33, 38. There's still a bit of a range, but he's definitely someone that over the course of the year, just keeps climbing higher and higher and higher. And for the teams who absolutely buy the bat, they say, hey, we see a guy who is hitting for big power, can stay in the dirt, whether it's shortstop or third base, a little bit of split camp, but uh, he's, he's a really good defender with a big arm out there. And people like him. There's, there's a lot of things to like. And then on the college side, one of the more Recent risers, if you will, is Kai Bush, left-handed pitcher out of St. Mary's. He was a 40th round pick of the Royals out of high school, bounced around a little bit, started at Washington State, went over to Central Arizona Junior College and landed at St. Mary's this year. Uh, He was a bigger guy, 6'5", 240. And in the past, he was just a little heavier, wasn't always in the best shape. That affected his delivery, which in turn affected his control. But he trimmed up this year. He's still a big guy. I mean, he's a full 6'5", 240, but it's a trimmer build. The delivery's gotten better. With that, the stuff has gotten better. The control's gotten better. And really, the stuff's actually gotten better throughout the year. He was up to 94 earlier in the year. Now he's recently started touching 96. And teams are looking at and saying, we've got a 6'5 lefty up to 96 with two decent secondaries. And he's throwing strikes. He's trending upward. Why wouldn't we take this guy, or at least consider him at the back of the first round and in the compensation round? So... Again, this is so volatile. If any of these risers we're talking about really struggle over the next two, three, four weeks, then maybe things can change just as they've risen over the last couple weeks. I mean, that's how quickly these things are changing. Uh, But Carson Williams and Kai Bush are two players out West in particular who are getting some chatter as, yeah, these are guys that may not be seen in this range for whatever reason, but there are teams who do like them firmly in this 30 to 40 range, if not even maybe a little higher. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it, it's going to be fluid throughout the entire process, really, up until the draft happens. So there are going to be some picks that you might be surprised by. But again, just the consensus falls apart so quickly. All right, Carlos. So we're going to finish with a little bit of fun here. We're going to do a mock draft. Now, we're only going to go to 10 picks. But full disclosure, this is just Carlos and I having some fun. This is not us using any inside information gathered from teams. This is just us having who, fun. With who would it. we pick? Yeah. So you go ahead and get the first overall pick. You want me picking first? I do want right. you picking first. I'll give you the tough one. All right. All right. First overall, 
Pittsburgh Pirates. I think Pirates. the first, I think the first five are probably going to be tough. I'm going to go with um, probably the guy that I've been higher on than everyone on the staff the entire process. I'll take the Texas shortstop, Jordan Lawler. Um, I just like his all-around game. Uh, and again, like we talked about, I, I think that when there are pitchers who are seen as neck and neck, let me go with the hitter. I like his all-around tool set. I think he's going to hit. I think he's going to run. I think he's going to grow into more power. I think he'll play defense for you at a, a premium position. So give me Jordan Lawler. Second overall pick, Texas Rangers. I do love Marcelo Mayer, but I am going to go Jack Leiter here. Again, this is the top pitcher in the class. Pitched really well this year. The walk rate it is a little concerning. You don't want to see 4.1 per nine in college, but you see the stuff. You, you see what he's been able to do this year. And yeah, that for the Rangers at number two, I'll, I'll go Jack Leiter. Right. I was, I was kind of thinking that you might take Marcelo. And since you didn't, I'm going to take him at number three. Who am I picking for here? The uh, Tigers? Yeah. Um, so I will take Marcelo Meyer. Uh, like you were talking about, I love his offensive upside. Uh, I mean, with both these shortstops that I've got here, I like the offensive and the defensive tools that they show. Um, I'm not really too concerned that he's not the twitchiest athlete. I just think he does everything so well and at such a high level. I have really high confidence in this, confidence in this pick. So I'm happy with that one at number three. Yeah, they would certainly be getting a great player. Fourth overall to the Boston Red Sox. I'm going to go Kamar Rocker out of Vanderbilt. That's big, durable right-hander with a proven track record, durability, performance. There's been some inconsistencies this year, as you talked about, but I think if you just take a step back and look at the big picture, this has been one of the best pitchers and one of the best college conferences and someone that I think the Red Sox would be very, very happy to have in their system. I get all the bats and I'm going to go with another bat here at number five for the Orioles. Um, and I'm going to take Brady house. I do love his offensive upside. I like just the high school shortstop demographic in general. I think that's one of the strongest areas of this class. I think Brady house has just really, really loud hitting and power potential. I like the athlete. I think wherever he winds up defensively, he's going to be a good defender on the left side of the infield for me. Um, and he's got a chance to have massive power. So I'll take Brady House out of Georgia for the Orioles. All right. Give me Henry Davis at six for the Diamondbacks. Great hitting catcher all day, every day. All right. At uh, number seven for the Royals, I think I'm going to take – I'm torn between two hitters here. And I think I'm going to go Khalil Watson. I'm going to scoop up all the high school shortstops. Um, I love the swing. I love the bat speed. I don't really care that he's not the biggest guy in the world. I think he's going to have power. I mean, the, the swing that Josh got recorded uh, a few weeks ago from one of his first games is just really impressive. Um, yeah, give me all the high school shortstops. I'll take Khalil Watson at number seven for the Royals. Number eight for the Rockies. I mean, none of these picks are easy at this point. Yeah, you, you can think about it a little. They're, they're going a little yeah. faster than the actual draft does in real life. So Yeah, uh, <laughs> gosh, this is a tough one. Um, I mean, we have Sal Frelick as the top college hitter in this class outside of Henry Davis. Not the biggest guy, but he's consistently performed, and you know he's, he's playing well. I'll go ahead and take the top college hitter here. That's on the board. So Sal Frelick to the Rockies at number eight. All right, so my last pick here with the Angels – the board gets a little bit bigger here for me, the number of players that I'm looking at. There are some there are some college hitters that I feel comfortable with, but I don't necessarily feel really excited about. So I think I'm going to um, 
Oh man, this is tough. I'm really torn between two pitchers here and I'm glad at least I'm not glad, but at least Gunnar Hoagland is injured and makes it a little bit easier for my decision here. But I think I might go Jackson Job, and it, it seems crazy to me to take a high school right-hander inside of the top 10, but I mean, when you grade him out, it's a pick that I'm just really excited about. I love the, I feel like he's got two traits that are really hard to teach and that's ability to throw strikes, which maybe I don't want to overstate it. He's not like some super command pitcher, but I do think it's, it's going to be very good control. He's athletic. There are no real glaring red flags with the delivery. And I think as he continues to kind of get better um, pitching, coaching and about, or yeah, coaching and development. And he focuses on pitching exclusively because it's only recently that he started to focus on pitching. He's just going to keep getting better and just his innate feel for spin, all of those things together. In addition to like a really good changeup he's shown, there just aren't a lot of questions I have for him. And I know the profile historically is pretty risky, but I'm going to chase the upside here and go for Jackson Job. All right. Brings us to the Mets at number 10. Yeah, this isn't easy. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad we're not the ones actually making the uh, decisions. Yeah. I felt like last year we were able to get through 15 or 16 without too much hesitation. Uh, but again, this kind of goes back to what we talked about. You know, every draft is different. This is one where there's a lot less conviction on guys. Uh, we've talked about a couple guys having injuries has thinned it out at the top. Yeah, I mean, at this point, I think you have to look at Ty Madden, the right-hander at Texas. I mean, he's done everything you want. He's, he's performed this year for stuff. Uh, you know, we consider him a top 10 talent in the draft, and that's based off feedback from evaluators all across the game. And I think at this point, yeah, that's the guy you take if he's available there on the board for you. Nice. So Ty Madden to the Mets at number 10. And there we go. That's a wrap. So we had Jordan Lawler, Jack Leiter, um, Marcella Meyer, Kamar Rocker, Brady House, Henry Davis, Khalil Watson, Sal Frelick, Jackson Job, and Ty Madden. That is our top ten. I like did it. I take, did I take all college guys and you take high school guys for yeah, I kind all of five? Boxed, I kind of boxed you into that, but I, I knew I really wanted at least three of the high school shortstops, and I had a feeling that I was going to be able to get a couple of them. Um, and then I was torn between Khalil Watson and Sal Frelick at my second to last pick and just opted for taking all the high school shortstops and then kind of rounded it out with a high school right-hander. So, you know, I guess we have our, we have our tendencies, Kyle, you want the uh, college guys. I'll take the high school guys. Works for me. I mean, I, I just believe in taking the top talent on the board, but yeah, yeah. no, it's uh, it's certainly interesting. And again, this is going to be a very, very interesting draft. Uh, hopefully Carlos and I have covered it for all you guys. And it's mid-May. The draft isn't until the All-Star break this year, middle of July. So a lot can and will change between now and then. But it's certainly been an interesting year already, Carlos. And I know it will continue to be as we uh, get through the end of the college and high school seasons here and move closer and closer to draft day. Yes, sir. It's been fun, Kyle. Thanks for having me. All right, everyone. That will do it for another Baseball America podcast. Go ahead and give us a review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, whatever platform you're listening on. We'd love to hear from you. For Carlos Colazzo, I'm Kyle Glazer. Thanks for listening. Stay safe, everybody. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. 
But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.